0: Thanks for listening to episode 68 of Impact Boom. My name is Tom Allen and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Kathleen Kelly Janice. Kathleen Kelly Janis is a social entrepreneur, author and lecturer at Stanford University. Her new book, Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up and Make a Difference is a playbook for how nonprofits scale. As an expert on philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early-stage organisations, her work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, Stanford Social Innovation Review, TechCrunch, and The San Francisco Chronicle. She is the co-founder of Spark, the largest network of millennial donors in the world. Based in the heart of Silicon Valley, her forthcoming book, Social Startup Success, Features best practices for early stage nonprofit organizations based on a five year research project interviewing hundreds of top performing social entrepreneurs. So, on today's podcast, we'll discuss Kathleen's insights into launching and scaling not for profits. We'll get Kathleen's thoughts and perspective on social entrepreneurship. And Kathleen will provide us a nice summary of her recently launched book. Kathleen, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: It's great to be speaking to you as you sit over there in San Francisco and myself here in Brisbane. So, to kick things off, <laughs> could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working as an academic and in the nonprofit sector?
1: Well, I was raised in a small town by parents who always taught us that it was our duty to give back in the world. And so... We often spent our weekends volunteering at soup kitchens and at the local hospital, but my parents always taught me that it wasn't just about making sure that we were taking care of those in our community who didn't have Uh, enough to eat, that it was also about making sure that the organizations themselves, that the soup kitchen itself had enough resources and the strategy that it needed to survive and thrive and provide those crucial social services. So from a very young age, I was always very aware of the importance of supporting nonprofits. And um, when I started my career as a young lawyer in San Francisco, I also spent my nights and weekends giving back and volunteering and discovered this challenge of nonprofit scale from a personal perspective when I co-founded a a small nonprofit in San Francisco called Spark. And we were doubling our revenue every few months and uh, had a ton of buzz. And yet, even with all of that, we couldn't raise more than $500,000 in revenue. We hit this wall just mm. when we were hitting our stride. And so I became really curious when I eventually began teaching social entrepreneurship at Stanford, wearing my research cap, why is it that some organizations succeed and others do not? Mm. And I, I've i spent the past five years traveling the world, interviewing 100 of the top-performing social entrepreneurs and their teams and their beneficiaries and their funders, all to get to the bottom of this single question, why do some organizations succeed in scale and others don't?
0: Well, it's a really, really interesting story, Kathleen, and much of your experience has been collated into this new book, Social Startup Success. So could you please tell us more about the key arguments from the book and what you believe are the fundamental ingredients for building a successful organization that creates positive impact?
1: Yeah, to me, what was most striking as I was going through these interviews in a very condensed way and talking to, you know, many people every week is that I kept hearing the same strategies over and over again, testing, measuring impact. Funding experimentation to get to a funding model that was consistent with an organization's mission, collaborative leadership, drawing on senior leadership, staff and board to to succeed, and storytelling and being purposeful about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And what's most exciting about these findings to me is that I kept waiting for someone to say, you know, it's just charisma or a good idea that you know, gets an organization to the next level. And no one said that. And yeah. it's not to say that charisma and good ideas aren't important. They absolutely are. But it's really these fundamentals, these foundations that organizations can lay using strategies that are well tested by other organizations mm. um, that, that can help organizations position themselves for scale and that it doesn't have to cost, thousands and thousands of dollars in consulting fees to do that, that every organization can learn from the tools that I talk about in social startup success um, to position themselves
0: for success. Yeah, fantastic. So in your hundreds of interviews, how have you then seen the social enterprise sector transform and change? And where do you see it heading?
1: It's funny because I grew up, you know, with my father's nonprofit, (laughs) which was, very much about if someone is suffering, let's give them what they need to stop that suffering. It's Mm. sort of about band-aids. What can we do to help take care of this wound? But I think what charity has realized is that it's not enough to put band aids on these solutions, mm. that we've been putting band aids on solutions for decades, and that those band aids are doing nothing to solve the underlying wounds that are causing the problems in the first place. And so, this movement of social entrepreneurship, which is really just applying innovation um to nonprofit ideas and social change is that it's not just about giving a man a fish or even teaching a man a fish. It's about revolutionizing the fishing industry and mm-hmm. shifting the paradigms that are causing injustices in the first place. Yeah. And so it's a much more sustainable approach to nonprofit change and, and hopefully something that will be much more effective for the long term.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you've been teaching at Stanford University now in a program on social entrepreneurship. So how do you believe students then can most effectively be engaged and supported in in learning about social enterprise and the sort of findings that you have communicated through your book?
1: Well, I learned so much from my students. And and what's so exciting to me is that this next generation is approaching social change in an even more expansive and different way. Mm. Um, there are no longer boundaries between for-profit and and nonprofits, and that young people— have so many more tools in their toolbox to solve these pressing social problems that we face like climate change and global poverty. And so I think that's a really exciting trend that um, students bring to the table, that there's no longer this sort of dichotomy of I'm either going to go to a nonprofit and make a difference or I'm going to go to a for-profit and make money. Mm. That There are many, many, many different places in between. And and so the advice that I always give my students, though, is to really go work for someone before you start an organization. I mean, Mm. this is what I learned from so many of my interviews is that a lot of these stories start in very much the same way that someone graduates from college and then they go and start an organization and you know they end up falling a lot frankly because they are they have never been hired before in their lives let alone hired someone else and Mm -hmm. so you know these challenges of management of figuring out how to impact how to measure impact uh, effectively are all real challenges that other organizations have really dealt with. And so I think it's really prudent for young people to go learn from others before they start their own organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's some great advice. So in a recent article that you wrote about philanthropy for the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Kathleen, you wrote about no mission being as urgent for the philanthropic sector as finding better ways to allocate the $373 billion of funds that are given annually to optimize impact. So, on that note, how have you seen philanthropy change and how might nonprofits better receive philanthropic dollars?
1: Yeah. Well, philanthropy has changed enormously over the past several decades. Uh, Philanthropy used to be about writing a check and being done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is no longer. Foundations and and funders want to be involved in their philanthropy. They want to write a check and then they want to lean in and roll up their sleeves and and help not only with their dollars but also with their expertise and their networks. And that's really exciting because we need all hands on deck to solve these really pressing social problems. Mm. And so funders are getting in more involved. The other really huge trend on the funding side, and this has been in large part because so much of the funding, at least in our region, in the Silicon Valley, is coming from people who have been successful in the tech sector. Yeah is that they're applying a lot of these principles that they learned in terms of return on investment and trying to think about efficiencies and scale are are applying these principles to the nonprofit sector. Mm. So on the one hand, this has been really, really positive in in helping to develop better key performance indicators, for example, to determine metrics not only to prove that a nonprofit is doing work effectively, also to help them improve um, and be comfortable with failure, and and to put aside ideas that maybe aren't working as well as as they would like. Mm. Um, so I think this has all been super positive because we need to understand where organizations are having impact so that we can be as efficient as possible with the resources that we have. Yep. But I also think we need to caution funders against taking this to an extreme. There have been some funders like Sean Parker, for example, the the founder of Napster and and one of the co-founders or early investors, I guess, in Facebook. Who's decided to put a lot of his money toward uh, what he calls hacking philanthropy? <laughs> mm. And we're trying to figure out how to be as efficient as possible with his philanthropy yeah and so for some funders um, like Sean Perker who wrote in The Wall Street Journal about this topic um, it's about solving ideas that we know we can solve that are measurable
0: mm-hmm. like
1: can we reduce the number of cancer deaths um, for example and so this has been a big focus of his philanthropy um, which is great um. And we also need to remember that not everything that we need to solve is measurable in the same way as like number of deaths or number of yeah. people served. And so we're thinking about improving human rights. This is a, a very intangible approach to social change that we need to honor as well and mm. think about how do we also tackle problems that where we might not see the impact of our work for decades to come.
0: Yeah, most certainly. So looking at social enterprise then from a policy perspective, what do you believe the key steps government needs to take to help foster and support an innovative social sector? <laughs>
1: Well, government can be supportive in many ways. Um, Certainly, the United States, we've seen a pay-for-success movement, which has been a really interesting strategy that the Obama administration implemented to use a metrics-based approach to help fund organizations that are showing that they're having an impact in their work. So Mm -hmm. funding is certainly one aspect and i think also partnership with nonprofits is really critical i mean we know that nonprofit models will not be scalable in and of themselves yep. that you know in the united states for example of the 170 charities that have been founded since 1970 that have scaled past 50 million dollars i mean that's that's a really finite number mm-hmm. um and, and so, you know, to scale big ideas, we have to implement them into policy. And so thinking about how we can develop partnerships with government is really critical in order to achieve that level of scale.
0: Mm. So are there any countries then that you believe are really doing this well or that are leading the charge when it comes to social innovation? And if so, what are they doing that you think that other countries like the States or Australia could adopt?
1: Well, I, my focus is on the United States, yep. um, partly because I have th- had three babies in the time that I started <laughs> writing this book. And so my travel was limited to the United States, even though I have a background in international human rights. Yep. Um, but I, 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 So I can only speak to the United States. But what I will say here is that the most innovative partnerships have been the ones that have taken ideas that the government wouldn't otherwise be in a position to implement. Mm. So, for example, um, needle exchange programs are a great example of something that the government would never in a million years um, test. First Mm. of all, because it's very controversial, and this idea of giving people free needles um, uh, to break their – drug habits. Um, And and second of all, because government is not small and nimble. Mm. Um, Nonprofits are. And so I think what we have to do is we have to recognize what are are the competitive advantages that everybody is bringing to the table and leverage the advantage that small nonprofits have of being small and nimble, and then work towards developing partnerships um, with government to highlight the the approaches that are working and bring them to scale.
0: Mm. I think that's some great insights there, Kathleen. So looking at some inspiring projects or initiatives, which ones have you come across recently, which are creating some great positive social change?
1: Well, one example that I love that really highlights why, we need social entrepreneurs to be testing the best possible strategies on the ground is an organization called Last Mile Health that's based in Liberia. Raj Punjabi started the organization after graduating from Harvard Medical School because he had fled Liberia Mm. uh, in the Civil War and wanted to come back and help rebuild the country. And so when he first started the organization, he was testing out 13 different programs, everything from reproductive health to solving the HIV AIDS program program, um, to training community health workers. Oftentimes, people in rural areas had to walk 12 to 13 hours um, to, to see a doctor in the capital city. And so you can imagine these people who are already weak and feeble having to walk that far to get adequate medical care. And so he he thought about, well, what if we can train people in those communities to provide care, even if they're not necessarily doctors using cell phone technology? How can we connect them with doctors mm. to to give these people the treatment they need without actually forcing them to walk 12 to 13 hours? And so he started testing and, and all of these programs. And realized very quickly that the community health care program results were blowing away the the results and the impact that he was having with the other programs and not that those weren't great programs they yeah. were doing really important work but just in terms of the resources that he was contributing he saw this as the as the the best possible way to make impact and so he started channeling all of his resources and to that program. He closed all the other programs down to really make that the focus. Mm. And it's a good thing he did because when the Ebola crisis hit in 2012, Last Mile Health community healthcare workers were absolutely critical to alleviating a global health crisis. And so if we think about impact, we would be possibly living in a very different world had it not been for the intervention of last mile health. And I think this really epitomizes the essence of social entrepreneurship is leveraging these small ideas to make really big change in ways that can be replicated, not only in Liberia, but in countries all over the world who have similar challenges.
0: That's a really inspiring initiative there, and I'll stick a link to it in the article. So to finish off, Kathleen, as an author yourself, what books would you recommend to our listeners?
1: Oh, so many good ones. Um, The one that I am reading right now, actually listening to, I really recommend listening to books, too, for those of you who are busy and have commutes and long time in the car. Uh, The Malala's book Mm. on how she became an activist for girls' education um, and and fought against the Taliban as a 14-year-old girl is so, so inspiring and I think makes us all feel like we have the capacity to make a difference in Mm. our communities. I also really recommend uh, a new book by Nadine Burke Harris called The Deepest Well, Mm. and it's about childhood adversity and looking at how we all have the potential to be advocates on behalf of children locally and globally. And then if you want to see my full list of book recommendations, I can send you a link to a Goodreads, Good Minds Suggests column that I just did with my favorite books about how to make the world a better place.
0: Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'll certainly stick that at the bottom of the article. Kathleen, we really appreciate you sharing your time and your generous insights today. And we wish you the absolute best with uh, the launch of your book. So thanks again. And we'll look forward to following you as you progress into the future.
1: That's great. And if your listeners want to find the book, you can do so at kathleenjanis.com. And I'd love to have a conversation with you. Join me on Twitter at KKillieJanus as well. Thanks, Tom.